0: Good morning to each of you. Uh, Testimonies of the transforming power of God's grace are stirring. Uh, They are quite compelling. And today we are going to hear one such testimony as recorded in the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. Before we get to it, I want to go back in time all the way back to the 1500s, and I want to remind you of the fact that we are celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so October 31st, 1517 is the date that historians usually point to as marking uh, the beginning, the commencement of the Protestant Reformation, because it is on that date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, where he was teaching and living. Uh, I don't contend that. I have no problem with it. It's important for us to understand, though, if you go back and read the 95 Theses, you'll realize it's less than a fully Protestant declaration, because Luther is still um, a man in transition. And there are some real, real highlights in the 95 Theses. And there are still some lowlights because he's still Roman Catholic for all intents and purposes. And it will only be a couple of years later, after October 31st, 1517, that he really comes to a full understanding of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By 1525, he certainly has it together. And in 1525, he produces what is, in my estimation, and many would agree with me, what is, in my estimation, his most important work. As a matter of fact, prior to his death, he he basically said, not his words, but this was the sentiment, you can burn all my books, save for two or three. You can burn them all. But only two or three I want kept for posterity. And this was one of them. A book he wrote, he penned in 1525, called On the Bondage of the Will. On the Bondage of the Will. It is uh, his magnus opus. It really is. It is the greatest work he produced. And if you ever sit down to read anything by Martin Luther, uh, this is the one I would recommend. On the Bondage of the Will. He wrote it for a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus was a humanist, a Roman Catholic. He agreed. He agreed with Luther in that The Roman Catholic Church had fallen into some sorry abuses, but he disagreed with Martin Luther when it came to the very essence of the gospel. And uh, Luther penned on the bondage of the will in response to some of the criticism he was receiving from Erasmus. And in that work, he actually praised Erasmus for, in Luther's words, Forgetting to the root of the controversy. Forgetting to the root of the controversy. The real issue. Interestingly enough, Luther was not referring to penances or indulgences. He was not referring to saints or processions. He was not referring to the Pope or the magisterium. He was not referring to the confessional or to purgatory. He was not even referring to the doctrine of the mass, transubstantiation. No, in the first instance, Luther was referring to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as it stands on a certain foundation. And it was this foundation... That Erasmus had attacked. And so it wasn't even in and of itself. The doctrine of justification by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. Although it was by consequence. No. It was a doctrine upon which justification is based. Is founded. A much deeper issue. In Martin Luther's estimation. He penned to Erasmus. You alone. You alone in contrast with all others, have attacked the real thing. You alone have attacked the essential issue. And the essential issue was simply this. What is the source of faith? That was the issue. Uh, You can talk about indulgences. You can talk about the Pope. You can talk about the magisterium. You can talk about purgatory. Sure, we need to deal with those things. Fine. But they're not the central issue. There is something much deeper, far more profound at stake, and it is this. What is the source of faith? Where does faith come from? Or put in slightly different terms, does faith originate with man or with God? If our answer to that question is man, if we really believe, that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, rests upon me, something I do in and of myself, that my faith, my believing in the Lord Jesus, my coming to the Lord Jesus, my receiving the Lord Jesus is an act, a pure act of the human will, then I have actually undone the doctrine of justification. That was Luther's contention. And he understood exactly what Erasmus was saying. Erasmus, in insisting upon the autonomy of the human will, if the answer to that question, does faith originate with man or God, if the answer to that question is man, then the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ is undone. Luther contended that we cannot believe. We cannot believe apart from God's sovereign grace. Faith originates with God, not man. And so he wrote, bring up the first slide, Melissa. He wrote, he penned, uh, not in the bondage of the will, actually in a different work. He penned the following. No man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from God alone. For Luther, in sum, the only hope for human depravity is divine sovereignty. The only hope for human depravity is divine sovereignty. Now, I realize that expression, depravity, total depravity, radical depravity. I understand even the title for Luther's work on the bondage of the will. I understand that the expression free will... I understand the expression abound free will. All of these terms, all of these expressions are open to misinterpretation. And I recognize that in our day there are all sorts of false ideas and notions floating around out there as to what we mean when we speak of free will. And I know some, because I've heard it in the past, not recently, but certainly years ago, I have had some accuse me of denying man's free will. Why? Because I insist on the bondage of the will. I insist on the doctrine of radical depravity, total depravity. And so some have said, well, you deny free will. I do not deny free will. I think the problem, I think the problem is multi-layered, but basically part of the problem is this, a misunderstanding of how terms are being used. And exactly what is being said. This was powerfully driven home to me on Friday. I can't even remember what the context of it was or what his point was. But I heard this fellow say, and I'll a- ask the question, or present this scenario and then ask a question. I'll do it with you, a little exercise to demonstrate the veracity of what I'm saying. And so uh, imagine this, what I'm saying right now, this scenario. Um, a man leaves home jogging. Okay, you with me? You can picture it. He turns left, keeps jogging turns left, turns left again. He's still jogging, and he jogs all the way home where he meets two masked men. Okay? Why did the man leave home, and who are the two masked men? You know the answer to the question, but you don't actually know it, do you? Why did he leave home, and who are the two masked men? You do know the answer to the question, but you will never figure it out in a million years. Why? Because you've made an assumption about the word home. Why did he leave home? Because he hit a home run. He turned left, he turned left, he turned left again. Once he got home, he met two masked men, a catcher and an umpire, right? You would never have figured that out if I had given you a hundred years. Why? Because you had arrived at an assumption. You were already on a train track. As soon as I uttered the word home, and you thought you knew what I was talking about. And matter, I didn't figure it out either, don't worry. I was completely <laughs> mystified as to what he was, it was gibberish the first time I heard it. And then the light went on. When we speak of a bound free will, when we speak of the doctrine of total depravity, when we, when we get into exactly what Luther was arguing for in that treatise in 1525, please, please understand me. We are not denying that man has free will. You have free will. Everyone has free will. That's not the issue. And Luther was very clear on this. The issue is simply as follows. Your will is free to do. You are free to do. You are free to choose to do whatever you want. Now there's the issue what do you want the bible makes it clear that the flesh is at enmity with god in other words you don't like it it's the word of god outside of christ you and i everyone despises god no one seeks for god no one chases after god no one is looking for God because by nature man hates God. Man is free to choose God whenever he likes or whenever he wants to. What's the problem? He will never want to because the flesh is at enmity with God. His mind is darkened, his affections are completely distorted, out of whack, and he will never come to God of his own free choice because his free will is in bondage to his own sin. And so Luther was very clear. The only answer for human depravity, therefore, is what? It is divine sovereignty. We see all of this confirmed. We see all of this confirmed in a powerful testimony. You have your Bibles open to the book of Galatians. Follow along now as I read it for you, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11. You can bring up the next slide, Melissa. There's our outline. It's going to come up here behind me, an outline of the book of Galatians. And you'll notice at the beginning, we have the salutation. After the salutation, you have Paul's word of caution. And then after his word of caution, the body of the letter. And basically four major sections. You have the gospel revealed, the gospel explained, the gospel defended, and then the gospel applied. What I'm going to read for you now is that first major section, the gospel revealed, Paul's own personal testimony, Galatians 1 verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Yet because a false brother secretly brought him, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Paul's testimony. There again is the outline of the book in its entirety. Salutation, caution. You see the portion I've just read? The gospel revealed. In which Paul basically traces his experience over a period of 17, 18 years. I just read it for you. The next slide then, Melissa. And we enter into the outline of the gospel revealed. And in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul states his argument, 11th verse, hear it again. I would have you know. And so this is what I want to impress upon you, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, what I proclaimed, is not man's gospel. You see, that was the charge. That was the accusation. That his opponents were making. His opponents allege. Listen very carefully to this. Because we need to interpret the entire section I've read. In light of exactly what was going on. The context. What his opponents were saying. His opponents allege. That his gospel is from man. What they mean by that is this. That he has distorted. As a man, he has distorted what he received from the other apostles. And so the other apostles have the true gospel. Paul at some point received, inherited the true gospel from them. After that, at some point along the way, he twisted it. He distorted it. He he just messed everything up, whereby what he is preaching now is actually of man. It's man-made. And so Paul contends, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for, verse 12, because, here's why it's not man's gospel, it's impossible that it's man's gospel, I did not receive it from any man. No one shared this with me. No one told me of this gospel, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is making clear that he himself is one of the apostles. He did not receive the gospel from one of those apostles. He did not receive it from any human being. He was never discipled. He was never instructed. No one ever gave it to him. But he received it by direct revelation, extraordinary revelation, whereby Christ himself imparted the gospel to him. We read in 1 Corinthians 2, we impart, says Paul, we, the apostles, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. These things God has revealed To us, the apostles, through the Spirit. It is an extraordinary revelation, deposit, treasure, given to the apostles, whereby now we can declare, we can contend for what? The faith, the body, the body of truth, once for all, delivered to the saints. Any revelation that has taken place since the apostolic era has been ordinary. Those are the expressions the old theologians would use. They would differentiate between extraordinary and ordinary. Extraordinary revelation was the Spirit of God speaking apart from the written word. This was revelation, something new. Ordinary revelation is what? It is the Spirit speaking Through the word of God. We call it illumination. And so ever since the apostolic era, the closing of the canon, the completion of this book, the spirit of God still speaks, but he only speaks through what he has revealed. The faith, the canon, the body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. How important it is that we be clear on that in our day. I had an email earlier this week from someone who shall remain nameless. He's not with us at the moment, but he was sharing with me, wherever he is, that uh, he's he's living beside someone or staying beside someone who is a self-proclaimed prophet. And he spent three hours just listening to this guy go on and on and on and on about everything he had heard from the Spirit of God. And this dear brother was writing me an email. How do I handle this? Well, most of you know, my emails are kind of curt to the point, right? If I can get away with the letter K, I do it. I couldn't in this point. I had to say a little more. And so I said, look, if I were you, I'd stay as far away from him as you possibly can. Stay as far away from him as you possibly can. This self-proclaimed, self-appointed prophet who actually thinks he's the recipient of extraordinary revelation, if so, my friend, write it down and let's add it to the Bible. If that is revelation... That's really revelation, then it is on par with the Word of God. Friends, there has been no extraordinary revelation since the apostolic era. The ministry of the Spirit of God, ever since the closing of the canon, has simply been to illuminate what he then revealed. Paul was a recipient of that revelation. And so this is part of his argument that he is stating. How dare you? I mean, this is just, this is mental gibberish. How dare you suggest that my gospel is man-made, meaning it's something I heard from the other apostles and then twisted, whereby it's now a distortion of the truth. Nobody taught me this. I received it by direct revelation. He then follows it up with four appeals. You see them there behind me. He appeals firstly to his conversion in verses 13, 14, and 15. And he reminds the Galatians of what? His former life in verse 13. You've heard of it. You know it. My former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I. For the traditions of my fathers. And then he goes on to describe what? A miraculous transformation. His point is what? Why am I preaching something that I formerly despised? Why am I now suffering for something that I was so vehemently, formerly, vehemently opposed to? How could you suggest that this is something man-made? This has no human explanation. The only way to account for this is through the divine working of the Spirit of God in me. He makes a second appeal. There it is. To his isolation, his separation, his isolation. Use whatever word you want. And in the 16th verse down through the 24th verse, what's his point? He's going, look, I was converted, rode to Damascus. I went on to Damascus, preached there for a little while, just a brief stay, and then to Arabia, for three years. And I was preaching there, studying the scriptures. And then back to Damascus just for a brief moment. Three years have passed. Then I finally went up to Jerusalem. But you know, I was only in Jerusalem two weeks. Just there two weeks. That's all. Not even a real vacation. Two weeks. And I only met Peter and James. So this idea that I received the gospel from the other apostles, it's just factually and geographically impossible. I was never in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I never even met the other apostles. Three years I'm ministering before I even have any kind of casual encounter. And at that time, only with Peter and James and only for a couple of weeks. And then I was gone. And up I went into the regions of Cilicia and Syria. And and, and so this idea that I have adulterated the gospel, what I received from the other apostles, makes no logical sense. I was never with the other apostles. They didn't give this to me. I received it by divine revelation. And then he makes a third appeal, his confirmation into the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And here he makes the point that after 14 years, I don't know if it's 14 years from his conversion, 14 years after the end of the initial three years, whatever. His point is this. I went up to Jerusalem again. So this is either recorded in Acts 11 or Acts 15. Scholars are all over this. Lots of controversy. It doesn't really matter when it comes to the flow of his argument. His point is this. 14 years later, I made another visit to Jerusalem. And when I went up to Jerusalem this time, I met the big three, right? Peter, James, and John. They extended to me the right hand of fellowship. Not only did they extend to me the right hand of fellowship... But they did not disagree with anything I I was teaching. The only thing, the only thing they asked me to do was remember the poor, minister to the poor. As a matter of fact, I had Titus with me, Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. The big three, the church in Jerusalem, did not require Titus to be circumcised. They took no issue with the gospel I was preaching. Had absolutely no opposition to the gospel as it was lived out and as it pertained to this case study, Titus himself. Clearly, they understand the gospel as I understand the gospel that circumcision and Sabbath keeping and observance of the Mosaic law are not necessary to be a believer. And the apostles confirmed it 14 years after I've already been in ministry. And then he makes a fourth appeal. There you have it, his exhortation. When exactly this happened, we'll get into it next Lord's Day. There it's recorded. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Peter goes up to Antioch in Syria for a visit. And he's in there. And he's eating with everybody, Gentiles, Jews, it doesn't matter. There's neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ. He's fellowshipping with them. He's eating with them. He's making, he's got no bones of contention over circumcision or the Mosaic law or anything like that. Suddenly there are visitors, others come and whether they're creating the scandal or, or they're sharing what they're hearing elsewhere, suddenly Peter feels threatened and some he's getting hold of this idea that, you know, if, if I keep living like I'm living, you know, Maybe persecution. Uh, maybe it's going to cause estrangement here or problems there. And he begins to back away from the Gentile believers. What does Paul do? He Takes opposition with him. Excuse the expression. He gets in Peter's face, doesn't he? And he rebukes him publicly. He doesn't say it, but the inference is obvious. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't make this part of his argument. The inference is what? Peter listened. And Peter subsequently repented. And so Paul's point is what? This idea that I I received the gospel from the apostles and then adulterated it. No, it makes absolutely no sense. As a matter of fact, Peter knew the gospel. I know the gospel. We know exactly what this revelation entails. We did not disagree over the content of the gospel. Peter fell into what? A misapplication of what he knew. He was ignoring what he knew. And when I confronted him, he responded and got back on track. So this idea that I'm a lesser apostle, this idea that I've only come by the gospel by way of secondhand information, and this idea that what I'm teaching, there is neither Jew nor Greek in the body of Christ, that this is a distortion of what the other apostles are teaching, it doesn't hold any water. Here are the facts. Here is my testimony. And so, this accusation that his gospel is from man is unfounded and is indefensible in the light of the facts. Paul's testimony, what are we to make of it? We're going to come back to it next Lord's Day and get into the second chapter. I want us just to focus our attention for a few moments on the first chapter and just a few verses out of this chapter and affirm four lessons from Paul's own testimony. Testimony that he sums up primarily in verses 13 through 16. And here are four lessons, four takeaway points from Paul's testimony. The first, sinful, sinful self-centeredness. Controls all our seeking. Sinful self-centeredness. Controls all our seeking. Look at his description of himself. Again, beginning in the 13th verse. You have heard of my former life in Judaism. Pre-conversion. How I persecuted the church of God violently. And tried to destroy it. You know... I kind of thought I was Elijah. Remember Elijah killing the, was it the 400 prophets of Baal at the foot of the mountain, right? That, that's what I thought I was like. I thought I was doing God a favor. I was so zealous running around arresting people, persecuting people, butchering people. Stephen, in a case in point. And I thought this was zeal. I was advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age, 14th verse, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Here's the question, answer it honestly. Was Paul a seeker? Paul was not a seeker. Paul in that state was not looking for God. Paul in that state was not seeking for truth. Paul in that state, in that condition, had absolutely no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not come to some sort of self-realization, unaided by the Spirit of God, whereby he, he, he came because of his, I don't know, his superior intellectual powers, because there was something innately good in him, or some apologist came along and gave him a hundred reasons why he had to believe, and he said, yes, you know, you're, you're right, I will now believe. That was not Paul's situation. Paul was not looking. Paul was diametrically opposed to God. It's reminiscent. His condition is reminiscent of what the Lord Jesus declares so succinctly in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come? You mean he doesn't have free will? No, my friends, what do we mean? He has free will. The problem is what? He can't come. No one can come because they don't want to come. There is no innate, inherent impulse whereby people are looking for the truth, looking for God, looking for the Lord Jesus. No, the flesh by nature is at enmity with God. It was illustrated for me in a, Interesting way, Friday night, Allison and I, were up at Fort Worth, Sundance Square. I guess it was maybe 8 o'clock in the evening. Beautiful evening. And there, you the fountain. Have you been there? The fountain on Sundance Square? Beautiful. Wonderful evening. Very entertaining hour. Why? Because you have all the parents there with the kids. And there's a signs in each corner of Sundance Square, rules for the fountain. And the rule, number one rule is what? After 6 o'clock, you shut it down. Nobody's allowed in a fountain. Okay, firstly, the number of people who read the sign and just outright ignored it was mind-boggling. So information, I'm ignoring it. I'm doing what I want. There's then this poor, hapless officer. I mean, what kind of... I don't know what they're paying him, but not enough. He's got the responsibility, the very unpleasant responsibility of policing the situation and walking around and drawing everyone's attention to the rules. They're posted. Oh, the responses he would get, the snarkiness, snarkiness, the faces, just the complete lack of respect for a man in uniform. The moment his back is turned or he's left the square, what happens? The same trespassers are back in the fountain. He comes back and they repeat the whole thing. And then, then what happens? Parents, okay, they've been, they've been warned two or three times. Well, then they just kind of push the limits. And so they asked their kids just to stay within two feet of the boundary around the fountain. So that they're in the water, but not actually far enough in where the water is actually coming out of the faucets or taps or whatever they are. And then he needs to draw attention to the fact, well, no, it's, it's actually the whole thing. There is a boundary here. And on and on and on it went. What did it illustrate? Besides the fact that we're nuts? What does it illustrate? It speaks directly to the condition of the human heart, doesn't it? Something so trivial. I don't know if that's a good law or a bad law. I don't know what the councils of Fort Worth were thinking when they passed this ordinance. I don't know. I don't care. There it is. It's published. It's written. But in people, what is there immediately? I don't like it. And therefore, there is a resentment to it. And anyone who dares try to enforce it becomes the object of what? My displeasure, why? Because you're crossing what I want to do. Now multiply it by a billion and you're maybe an inch closer in terms of a description of our relationship with God. That's us, folks. We resent him deep down inside. I've said it three or four times. Here it is again, the word of God. The flesh is at enmity with God. That is unbridled hatred. The unbeliever, free to do whatever he wants, whatever she wants. The problem is what? In that condition, use your free will. Certainly, you will never, ever want God. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Something must happen first. It brings us to the second lesson I want us to get. The cause of salvation Is God's sovereign grace. Paul's testimony, you see it in the 15th and 16th verses, three statements 15, when he, here's the first one, had set me apart before I was born. He took the initiative. Even before I was born, you think of Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, even before either had done anything good or bad, that God's purpose according to election might stand. And here we have it in Paul's own experience, his own testimony, that God chooses his people before time. And the second phrase is what? He called me by his grace. And so having chosen me, set me apart before time, he now called me in time by his grace. And so Paul is a wonderful example of what the Lord Jesus proclaims in John 10. My sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Oh, when God calls, it is like Christ standing in the ship in the midst of the storm. You have the waves, you have the wind, you have the tempest. And he calls what? Be quiet. And it was quiet. When God calls, it is like the Lord Jesus standing before that groveling demoniac. He's been mutilating himself, living among the tombs. They can't bind him, neither with cord nor chain. And the Lord Jesus simply says what? Be gone. And legion was gone. It is like the Lord Jesus standing beside the tomb of Lazarus. There he is, dead, bound, three days in the grave. Come forth. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. Oh, it is like God himself in the beginning who declared, let there be light. And there was, there was light. This is a powerful. This is an effectual. This is a sovereign call, not instigated by anything in Paul He called me by his grace. The third statement really accentuates this. He was pleased. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. He did not find anything pleasurable in me. He was not responding to anything in me. It was his goodwill, his good pleasure to make his son known to me. Friend, do you actually think you know why God has been gracious to you? Do you actually think you know why God has been gracious to you? Why has God been gracious to you? If your answer to that is anything other than because of His good pleasure, I'll tell you right now, that is another gospel. That is another gospel. It's not the gospel we proclaim here at Grace Community Church. Most certainly is not. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only reason I am saved, the only reason I know anything of God's grace is because it all started with Him and it will all end with Him. His sovereign grace. You have never, I have never felt the full wonder of grace Until we surrender our claim to have the final say. We don't have the final say. We are completely dependent upon a gracious God. Here's the third lesson I want you to get. There is indeed hope for the penitent sinner. Paul testifies to that, doesn't he? In verses 13 through 15, living color, powerful example. He tells us in his first epistle to Timothy that he received mercy so that in him, Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is to say, Paul's conversion, and this should give us all hope, particularly the individual mired in sin this day. Paul's conversion is a pattern of Christ's abounding mercy toward the most sinful, antagonistic, depraved individual, one of the most sinful, antagonistic, depraved individuals who has ever walked the face of the earth. And if God's grace superabounded toward the Apostle Paul, his grace can superabound to us and wipe away the deepest stain. Oh, his acceptance. The Father's acceptance of Christ, his beloved, the apple of his eye guarantees what? His full unequivocal acceptance of all who come to him in the shadow of Christ. In Christ. Clothed with his righteousness and knowing that he has paid the penalty in full for sin upon Calvary's cross. And here's the fourth lesson. Brings us full circle all the way back to Martin Luther. The gospel is life-transforming. And it is God glorifying. Look at verse 23. They only, that is the believers scattered throughout Judea. They know of me, though they've never met me. They were only hearing it said what? He, it's a reference to Paul, who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy the difference between night and day. 24th verse. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of my testimony. They glorified God because when they they heard of me, heard a lot, heard a little, it doesn't matter. When they heard of me, they understood what? There is no possible way To explain this man apart from God's sovereign grace. Here is what he was. Here is what he now is. The fruit of God's good pleasure toward him. And a testimony to God's grace. And they glorified God because of Paul. He was radically corrupted sovereignly purified. He was radically enslaved, but sovereignly liberated. He was radically blind, but sovereignly enlightened. He was radically unable, but sovereignly empowered. From Paul's testimony, we learn what Luther was championing centuries later, that the only hope, my friends, the only hope, But human depravity is divine sovereignty. Our God in heaven, we do give you all the glory this day for devising a plan of salvation that would accentuate your glory to the fullest, for sending your Son to die in the place of deserving sinners, deserving of your punishment, for sending your Spirit, thereby calling us causing us to be born again, whereby we believe and confess and repent of our sin. And in all this, we have a great declaration of your power, a great declaration of your wisdom, and eclipsing them all a great testimony to your grace. May this encourage us this day. May it cause us to remove our eyes from ourselves and fix them upon your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.